X-ray. And welcome to the Beervana Podcast. We join you nearly live from the studios of X-Ray FM here in the Falcon Arts Building in beautiful North Portland. With me is Jeff Allworth, author of several books, including The Beer Bible and Widmer Way. And with me is Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University. And across from us is our producer, Will Romy. Hi, Will. Will's waving. We're waving. We wave back. <laughs> we always wave as if anyone can see that. <laughs> well, he's, you know, he's lonely back there. I know. <laughs> okay, so I played it totally straight. There's the intro. There's you, the new improved intro. What do you think? That was the, that was the second time that you, we we went all the way through. I think it worked pretty good. The first time we went all the way through. The second time at the, of this intro. Yeah, I think we're getting there. I think so. In about 100 more episodes, we might actually have a, a usable intro for you. So, so, this is the mindless chatter part of our, our podcast, <laughs> and I will tell you that uh, when we first started the the podcast, I I, I actually create scripts. Yeah. And I have them on my. Uh, uh, because, you ruffle, because you ruffle the paper, then people know. That's that there right. really is a piece of paper in exactly. front of it. Exactly. You see how that works. Uh, and on it, the very first one, I, so I created a format. On the very first one, I, I wrote 001, which was fairly confident that we would get to three digits. Triple digits. Wow, that's, that's a good... I, I never... Yeah, good point. This podcast 075. We're which, getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there, man. Very, so. very, very nice. <laughs> and and by the way, you know, times have changed. Improvements have been made. You now actually print two copies of the script, so we don't have to share. I bought a new printer, which prints on both huh? sides, which means Ooh. it's the same amount of paper, two scripts. Things are looking up. I know. Imagine what would happen if we had a sponsor. Yes. Let us, let us, let us reflect for a moment. Let's, let's what reflect a sponsor could do for us. In seriousness, if you would like to sponsor the Beer Vana podcast, uh, we would love to partner with you for one month, three months, six months. Uh, we will. Um, well, that was uh, going to be my second point: is what can we do for our sponsors? Yes, what we can do for our sponsors. We will. We will check out your beer. We'll, we'll check talk out to your you beers. About your brewery. If you'd like to highlight uh, recent releases, we can talk about those. Um, we'll we'll do a minute or two of uh, chat, and um, if you're interested in that, uh, we would love to talk to you. So, uh, reach out to me, Jeff at BeervanaBlog.com. All right. Now, now we've done our shilling part. That was right. That was impressive. Hey, so I have to tell entirely you. Entirely spontaneous. I have to tell you that I think this was a beer stripper from a while ago. I think. Uh, City of Dreams from Fort George Brewing. A beer that we may have talked about for sure, I think. Um, yes. and we definitely talked about it. Yeah. I think it might be a Sherpa. Anyway, uh, it's should, amazing. It's a, Should it's, be a Sherpa, perherhaps? Are you, are you <laughs> pre-Sherpa-ing it? No, I feel like you've, you've been a Sherpa. You know, I'm not confident in anything I remember anymore at yeah. my advanced age. But you finally had the but beer. But I'm, I'm about 63% confident that it was a Sherpa at some point. But I had, had the beer. Yeah. Uh, that's an extraordinary beer. It's a really extraordinary beer. It's a, uh, it's a hazy, uh, but it's like 5%, so it's really it, sessionable. It's called a pale ale. It's called, they call it a pale ale, okay. But, but it, it is definitely a hazy. It's a hazy. It's very uh, 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 hazy. <laughs> it's very hazy. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's super juicy is what it is. Very juicy. Thank you very much. Also. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just the classic hazy, but it uh, doesn't have... Uh, to my my palate, a savory note, and it also isn't doesn't have so many hops that it has that chlorophyll note, which right. is what I really don't like in the hazies is um, that 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 dense chlorophyll right. quality. So for me, it's a perfect uh, sessionable beer. I, I I do buy six packs of that, which I don't buy very many six packs, but um, because I get so much beer and I have to drink so much beer in my in my job um, that 
I, I don't buy that much beer, but when I do, that is actually in the rotation because it's such a tasty beer and it's right in my wheelhouse. Yeah. Everybody thinks I only drink lagers. Hey, man, City of Dreams. Okay. City of Dreams. Same with you. Everybody thinks you only drink lagers and, and Cascales. Not true. City of Dreams. <laughs> I drink City of Dreams. Uh, I do like me the hops. Yeah. Uh, okay. So today, uh, it's kind of a follow-up from our last pod. That's right. A couple of weeks ago, I was at Firestone Walker Invitational. Yeah. And in fact... To stick to the script. Oh, sorry. You, <laughs> I, 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 I actually, I stepped, may, on, I stepped on my own script. You may remember from our last episode that Jeff was recently in California attending the Firestone Walker Invitational Beer Fest. While he was there, he was able to sit down with none other than co-founder David Walker from the brewery. Uh, we have a regular feature here of case studies of different brewery models, and today we're listening to uh, that interview and consider the success of this 23-year-old company. Wow, it's a lot old now. It seems yeah. like they just... All right. And how it was... <laughs> I'm going off script again. <laughs> and how it has bucked trends for regional breweries its size. What I love about it is it's so clear to me and all the listeners that you've, you haven't even glanced at this text before you start reading it. Cause That's you, untrue. Glanced. I've definitely glanced. But you'll come across factoids that you clearly... And then I know, and I get out of script. Like, oh, hey, that's interesting. That's that's, that's interesting. (laughs) Or a nice turn of phrase. (laughs) That'll stop me in my track sometimes. Uh, Like, Jeff. Wow. I know. (laughs) Those those are my favorite. I'm going to have to do better. I want to get one of those little kudos again. One of the takeaways, I never was quite sure. uh, But now I know that there is, in fact, a Firestone and a Walker that formed the brewery. It just seems too good, right? Like Firestone Walker. The name seems too good. The name seems totally pulled out of. It's like a oh we we had a lot of money PR firm, and yeah. we went to a PR firm to come up with the most uh, like just a little bit British perfect. just a little bit American you know yeah but no it, and it's got the so prosody is a word that means the way uh, the musicality of of uh, of, of language uh, it's a term that we use in poetics and I'm being edumacated here you're being edumacated because I rarely get to do this kind of stuff uh, <laughs> you I, finally get to be the pendant I get, I get, I'm, going, I'm going pedantic on you uh, Firestone Walker has great prosody it's yes. uh, you know it's like you would choose that just based on it's the, an ama- it's perfect name yeah, yeah it's great so if, if you yeah if you spent a billion dollars at a PR firm that's what they'd come up with <laughs> that's right and, and what do you ha- know <laughs> it, hap- it happens to be two guys <laughs> it was their parents that figured that out how did they know uh, all right so we will get to the long form interview with David Walker oh whew. yes I, I thought I made him biff that it is David David Walker uh, but before but before we do that of course as always we have to do the news According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, quarterly census of employment and wages, so that uh, the... BLS, baby. Yeah, BLS, uh, C-E-W. These are two, (laughs) if you get into the the deep weeds, everything's got an acronym. So that's the BLS, C-E-W. Alcohol producers and wholesalers contributed 1% to total private sector growth in uh, the first quarter. Breweries accounted for about half of that, uh, with wholesalers and other alcohol producers counting for the other half. Of course, the vast, vast majority of those brewery jobs come from small producers. So what you're trying to say is craft beer is driving America forward. Well, I mean, that's kind of the an engine of America's economy is booze. Beer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, but that's uh, impressive. That's it, a big a, chunk. It's a big number. I was pretty shocked about that. I mean, how many industries are there? This is 1%. I mean, that's a lot of, there you know. 42. 
<laughs> well, I have to defer uh, to the maybe, economist. Maybe, maybe a few more. Yeah, to give might, or take. <laughs> might, might be a few more. Uh, but it's a substantial part of the economy. So. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I mean, it's not nothing. It's not nothing. Yeah. Good job, booze makers. <laughs> yeah, can <keep> drinkers. <laughs> that's right. But yeah, they're they're the they're the real champions here. Right? Yeah, it really is. People like us. Yeah. You really should pat yourself on the back. You drink beer. Imagine what you're doing to the American economy. Exactly. You're really, you're, they're supercharging it. Yeah, good job. Okay. Uh, and I've been charged to read this fast because it's big. Well, Here not necessarily we fast, but you have a, you have a challenge in front of okay, you. Okay, big. <laughs> Next, a trend to flag in anticipation of that episode on distribution we keep promising to have. Oh, yeah, we've promised that about 74 episodes ago. I know. Uh, <laughs> three state legislatures have recently taken up bills to reform their franchise laws, Maine, North Carolina, and Georgia. Franchise laws stipulate what legal relationship breweries have with wholesalers, and since prohibition, they have been enormously favorable to wholesalers. With consolidation in the industry, that's changing. Maine's proposed law is an example of the direction the industry is headed. Under current law, breweries producing more than 1,600 barrels a year are required to sign contracts with wholesalers, and this law would increase the cap to 30,000 barrels. Breweries under 30,000 barrels would also be able to exit the wholesaler contracts if their volume represented less than 3% of distributor sales and they paid fair market value for those rights. Uh... Yeah. So I know that's a lot, but it's well, it, let's it's a, let's let's that, that's why nobody talks about this stuff because it's it's tedious. I did a good job, by the way. You did a great Thank job. Thank you. That was fantastic. <laughs> so uh, and, let's talk about the origin of these. And I didn't send you down a blind alley because sometimes you'll uh, there'll be a, a weird thing. There well, OK, I, so I did posit the 30,000 thing because you said the law would increase the cap to 30,000 barrels and then breweries under 30,000 barrels would also be able to exit wholesale. Account. I thought the whole point was they could. Exit wholesale. Okay, never mind. I'm getting too. too no, they can't now in Maine. They can't exit their contracts at all. They're just. This is the thing about franchise laws. Very often, you're you're bound to them. Oh, in you're talking perpetu- about the exit part. Yeah, I see. Okay, so yeah, yeah. so you don't have to enter it now unless you're thirty thousand or more. Right. And if you're under thirty thousand, you have the potential to exit. I That's right. Now yeah. I get it. So thank you for that clarification. So why did these laws start in the first place? I don't know why these laws started oh. in the first place. Okay. I mean, I I do know that the three tiered system was a function of. Well, that's what of, I mean. Yeah, it was coming out of prohibition, and um, even though uh, we were uh, no longer a temperance country, there was still a huge amount of suspicion about alcohol, and so federal, state, and local regulators really, really, really wanted to fragment it as much as possible. So they could created the three-tier system, which would prevent breweries from having control over the market, and it would break it up and and create all these uh, kind of different players in the marketplace. So it's a way to create a middleman, uh, a middle company middle woman, uh, in between the, the producers of alcohol and the consumers. Right. That's right. Uh, and as we know, in other countries, particularly the UK, if you are a brewery, you can own a portfolio of, I think, up pubs. to 250 or 500 pubs, yeah. of your own pubs. So you have uh, vertical integration. Yeah. You can't do that in the United States. Right. So It seems, though, you could still prevent that without having the middle company in between, but... Well, here's an interesting thing you said one, once long ago on this podcast, oh, which uh, okay. it, it, it struck it struck me like a lightning bolt because uh, you you were just you were mystified by it uh, that that these franchise laws uh, were, were were permanent and you said I don't know why can't you just sign a, a law that's you know good for a year two years or five years that's how every other industry is and I just almost fell over because it seemed 
like such apostasy and blasphemy <laughs> and craziness. How could that possibly be? And ever since then, I've been thinking about it. Why not? Why? Why? Why do these things have to be permanent? I mean, it's only context, yeah. only in beer would you even consider having something like that. It's totally crazy. And yeah. I think that it, it, this marketplace is so fragmented and so fast moving that to have these permanent relationships are cra- it's just crazy. Yeah. So this is a this, you know this getting away from beer in particular. This is a an aspect of policy that. Uh, that I'm always fascinated about because it's a lot easier. Well, I won't say it's a lot easier, but a lot of times once policy is in place, you create stakeholders, uh, and now it's very hard to get rid of those policies. Right. Uh, for example, I had the distributor lobby. The distributor lobby is enormously powerful. Right. Exactly. There's um, the craziest thing <laughs> that I always talk about when I lived in Brazil was that uh, there's this whole industry of uh, essentially what we would call notary publics, people who like certify your signature, right? And we need to use, we have notary publics here, and we use them very occasionally from time to time. Right. But in Brazil, it's baked into everything. Mm. So uh, I had to do something, I had to register as a permanent visitor, whatever it was. I had to get my, uh, my little identification card. And uh, they needed my passport to confirm my identity. Now, in the U.S., you take your passport to the, bureaucrat right you'd show them your passport they'd look at it verify it and they'd sign off but no i had to take my passport to this uh, essentially notary public who would uh make a photocopy certify the photocopy was in fact from my my passport sign it saying it's an authentic document and then i would take that document so it just was this middle person who had absolutely no real functional purpose uh but you can't get rid of them when that once they're there because it's an incredibly huge industry in Brazil, and they have probably a lot of political power, and nobody wants to get rid of them. Yeah, it's kind of like the fact that we can't pump our own gas in Oregon. Yeah, there's a, a, actually a ton of examples of this. I read because uh, you got seven thousand people employed as gas pumpers in Oregon, and what on earth would they do if they couldn't pump gas? That's right. The, the stuff exists all over the place in the economy. We, and I'm sure as an economist, you hate hate it. And I read I read weird, wonky uh, political sites, and they'll point out things like. Uh, you have to have a license to be a hairdresser in a lot of places, and this creates this entire licensure uh, lobby uh, for hairdressers. And you know, okay, we're getting down the rabbit hole, but I will say one thing, which is licenses often occur in places of asymmetric information, right? So if you go to, into a into a hairdresser and you've you don't necessarily know if they're any good, right? This is where the market, the efficiencies of markets break down, right? Because I might pay for a haircut and they may be terrible and I get a bad haircut. But I didn't know that. If I known, I could make these rational decisions, and the marketplace solves it. A license doesn't protect you from getting a bad haircut. Well, this is true, but it doesn't so, protect it at all. I, I, I will, I will show you many women who get bad haircuts in in, in this town that I am aware of, and uh, uh, <laughs> they were not protected by that license. That <laughs> license is just purely there to create a, a a layer of bureaucracy. By the way, I had a I had this uh, uh, barber in in Denver when I lived in Denver who was. Uh, uh, became I don't know what was going on in his life I feel bad for him but he, he became more and more visibly drunk when I would go in there and the last time I went in he was rolling drunk and, <laughs> and gave me a hatchet on my head that was the last did time he, I went there well, and see he was probably licensed and he you was probably licensed yes exactly and, and you as a as a as an intelligent uh, young future economist or uh, an economist at the time should have looked at this drunken man and thought why the hell I am should I have turned you? around and walked away yeah. I, was, I was sitting there thinking this is really bad why didn't I why did I even sit down because <laughs> like, I knew it was coming it looks like a drunk cut my hair oh boy uh, okay we should uh, uh, turn to the our main topic, I think. 
Or think? we could continue to talk about hairdressing. <laughs> and I'm, yeah, I'm, the economics of rent seeking and yes, ah, rent seeking, excellent licensure. Yeah, yeah. Yes, okay. Uh, all right, so you were down in Paso Robles for the Firestone Walker Invitational. I was uh, just this past weekend. Uh, two weekends ago. Sorry, two weekends ago. Oh, right. Sorry. Yes, you were there two weekends ago. <laughs> Uh, that's a joke about when we're recording the yeah, podcast relative to when we're going to be playing the podcast. Playing the podcast, yes. Uh, this is new to me. i got to figure this out. I know. It used to be that we'd gather in your dining room and we'd upload it as soon as we were done. It's true. <laughs> we have temporal shifts Okay, so now. a couple of weeks ago, you were at the Firestone Walker Invitational in Paso Robles. You had a chance to sit down with David Walker of Firestone Walker. I did. Uh, and uh, interviews. Anything you want to say before we listen to the interview? Actually, one of the things we might want to do is try a little Firestone Walker beer as you're talking about this. Yeah, let's dial it up. Let's let's start with the beginning because we're going to start with uh, you know we're going to hear David Walker, one of the co-founders, uh, the Walker of Firestone Walker. Mm-hmm. And when this brewery started, uh, well, not to step on the uh, the the interview itself, the interview itself, but. When you hear David Walker, you will hear that his accent is not Central California coast. Uh, it's from somewhere a little bit further east. And um, when this brewery was founded, they they created a very interesting uh, brewery, which had this Burton used union system, which I I have to assume is absolutely the only one in the United States. Yeah, you need to describe that very briefly. So it's a it's a system that was developed in in Burton upon Trent. Uh, in the 18th century, I believe. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. So this is this is early in the Industrial Revolution, and right. they were trying to automate um, the way to make beer, mm-hmm. and so they created this series of barrels that the that the fermenting beer would go through, uh, and it would continue to capture yeast and send beer along this way, and it was the union system, uh, and it it was a kind of a classic way of making pale ale in Burton. Uh, if you ever go to Burton now, you can see that Marston Brewery still uses the Burton upon uh, Burton Union system. Yep. And so when they set up their brewery, they're like, "Let's make a Burton Union system." And they were really focused on classic English style ales. And we have uh, their first beer here, their their double barrel yeah. ale. And you should go to Burton because they also have a really interesting uh, museum. They do. They talk all about this. It is it is absolutely along with. Pilsen and Munich. Uh, All right, this is not a good opener. Okay, here we go. <laughs> um, one of the most important, uh, historically most important brewing cities in the world. And it it is not the kind of town you're going to go to for other reasons. Patrick and I went there, and it's a little bit down on its luck. It's sort of like the uh, Flint, Michigan of the UK. And uh, so it's not it's not in great shape, but this it's an amazing museum. And you can see yeah, what the titans... Is. I mean, you know, uh, Great Britain was an industrial superpower mm-hmm. and making beer that was uh, decades, probably 50 years ahead of where the rest of the world would be uh, when they were making beer and it was happening in Burton. Yeah, and, and, and there so, might be other things going on, but I will just say really quickly, the plug, I hope they still exist. If you do go to Burton, and you should if you're interested in beer because that's a great museum, there's a lot of history, but the Burton Bridge Brewery mm-hmm. is fantastic. Yeah, it's right in the shadow of that uh, uh, cool uh, museum that we went to. Where you can read all about the Burton Union system, and they make some. Oh my gosh, that's lovely! Pretty fantastic beer there at the Burton. Oh wow, Burton Bridge. Do t- we'll talk, man. <laughs> I'm a little. I'm savoring. Uh, that's just a really beautiful classic English. Absolutely. So this, this brewery was founded in uh, 1996, 
when uh, British ales were still uh, kind of at the center of American craft brewing. Mm-hmm. And it's a gorgeous um, it's sort of golden am- to amber. Golden to amber, uh, very clear. Yep. So it's conditioned very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got really nice malt forward taste, a little biscuity, mm-hmm. little nutty. Yeah, the, this is we were talking last week about uh, the difference in base malt approach between the UK and mm-hmm. and the United States. This is clearly just got all all the all the great malts. Mm-hmm. It tastes like it has uh, English hops, although a little slightly more hop forward than. Although the classic Burton uh, pale ales were pretty darn hoppy, like Bass. Mm. Bass was a signature brand right. uh, from that era. There were others, but um, by far the most famous that people would know now is Bass. You know, I don't think I've ever had this beer, and now I regret it. All these years wasted. That's what I'm here for, man. Not not drinking this beer. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so that'll be interesting because we'll talk about the evolution of the brewery, but here it is, like a very, very classic English-style ale, and very well done. Yeah, and I, I actually really like those those hops. There's a One thing that I really like about um, English beers is there's some kind of uh, alchemy that happens between the hops, the malts, and the the uh, yeasts that creates a kind of marmalade mm, yeah. flavor, which this has, which mm-hmm. is unique to British brewing, yeah. and I love it. Yeah, especially sort of as it sits on your tongue, it mm-hmm. kind of all coalesces. Yeah. All right. Uh, anything else you want to say before we listen to you talking to David? Um, I will say that this was, I interviewed David after the festival, and we were both a little tired, so I think you can kind of tell that we're a little bit tired. Um, (laughs) Day of festing. Yeah, so, uh, uh, you know. um, And it's outdoors. It's outdoors. That's right. We were uh, were drinking a Firestone Locker Lager, uh, Firestone Walker Lager. Um, We grabbed one of those and sat down, and at a certain point... um, his lovely wife, Polly, who was married to his partner, uh, Adam Firestone. No, excuse me, who is the sister of his partner. Yes, sorry, his wife. His <laughs> wife, yeah, sorry. <laughs> that would have been interesting. Yeah. That would have been a whole podcast in itself. <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really sorry. <laughs> Craft beer and polygamy, how? <laughs> thank you for correcting that. Um, yes, yeah, she sat down, and uh, she was also uh, quite charming. So you'll hear all of that Excellent. coming up next. All right. All right, we are uh, at the end of... Uh, the day of the Firestone Walker Invitational Beer Fest. Did I get that right? Bingo. All right. And we're here with David Walker, uh, co-founder of Firestone Walker. Bingo. Um, I want to talk to you about the fest, but yeah. I, let's get a little background yeah. about you mm. um, and uh, how this brewery got started. You have, um, I think, not a Central California accent. No, I'm English. <laughs> so we're a family business. Um, my partner, Adam Firestone, was running a third-generation family winery, and I was growing grapes. Um, uh, I married his lovely sister, and we've been married for close to 30 years. Um, and uh, we both sort of had the artisanal bug, um, wanted to make some beer. The family weren't 100% interested in making beer. So we uh, started the Firestone Walker Brewing Company and uh, started to make our own beer. and. Uh, um, Start a craft brewery, which we, we started sort of in the eaves of the Firestone Vineyard, and as we grew um, quickly, we sort of grew grew away and uh, sort of created our own enterprise, um, and have been now for 20, uh, 24, 25 years. One of the really interesting things about your brewery is that you started out making English beers. Mm-hmm. You had kind of like a modified Burton Union system. We did. And, um, 
you're, you know, you, you've really shifted from that. Will you talk about your original vision for the brewery and how you started out with that? <laughs> well, you know, obviously a lot of it was a lot of it was influenced by sort of the wine tradition, and there was this sort of sense that. If you're going to do something, it needed to have provenance. It needed to be traditional. You needed to be able to. If you're going to put your name on it, you need to be proud of it. And so, we decided we wanted to make a, an English pale ale in the sort of traditional sense, and um, <coughs> in that way, we we obviously um, created our own sort of uh, version of the Burton Union, um, and you did everything else that you would do to make a traditional English pale ale. Um, and that um, that was really how we started. Are you originally from anywhere near Burton? Or no, no. I mean, I was actually I was born in the middle of England, which is actually pretty close to Burton. But um, I ended, I grew up in Devon, in the southwest of England. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, you know, the 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 Burton Pale Ales were the were the, were the beers that I really loved to drink, um, those styles. And uh, so was that. Was that part of your, your? Were you the source of the? Like that's an obs really obscure and antiquated uh, no. way of making beer. So. No, well, it's. I mean, English pale ales aren't obscure or no. antiquated. I mean, they're they're sort of full flavored, drinkable, um, great beers. And um, no, you know, I think our inspiration is we wanted to make something that was balanced and drinkable, um, with a lot of flavor, and that. Um, sort of brought back a lot of the traditions of uh, traditional brewers and um, that was really our you know our inspiration um, and um, you know one could argue it could have been a you know a beautiful sort of Bavarian Pilsner but it wasn't it was, it was that was where our that was where our palate was at the time right so you you were inspired by those beers and yeah and your partner was also, he was, he was an American, so he was just, he's from this region. Did he resonate with that kind of beer? Um, he enjoyed it. I mean, he obviously had a highly developed wine palette. I mean, he's sort of um, making estate wine at a very high level. And um, so I think he, you know, he was, he was looking for something that had complexity and um, was different. And uh, this... I mean, by, by any standards nowadays, it's hardly different. It's pretty pedestrian. Um, but uh, um, it was complex enough for him, I thought. I think, think he found um, the integration of wood to be really interesting. And, uh, you know, coming out of the wine world, um, he had a lot of confidence in wood. You know, brewers just wanted to run in the direction. But uh, um, so it was, a good, it was a good match. When the uh, market of... So 25 years ago, nobody really knew what the American palate would look like, and you know, different breweries were selecting different styles to champion. Um, and you selected English Pale Ale, right? Tradition. And now you've evolved into this other brewery, yeah. and that's actually really challenging for breweries of your age to evolve into something else yeah. and have their identity trans, you know, shift over. Can, do you have any? Uh, have you reflected on how that happened and, and how you've managed to pull that off? Well, I mean, first of all, it's, it's over two decades. You know, if you're not evolving over two decades, then there's something severely wrong with you, I think. Um, and, um, you know, we're a, we're a collective of people. Um, and Adam and I don't do everything. And so, um, you know, Matt Brunelson came into our life, who ultimately is the vision for the beers. And, uh, you know, hop chemist, one of the probably the foremost, I think, um, brewers in the country and certainly has got a savant level understanding of 
hops. And uh, so it was only a matter of time before we sort of explored his curiosity in that field. And, um, you know, our principles were to make the best possible beer. Um, and, you know, just, just be uncompromising about that. Um, and um, so, you know, actually developing an English pale ale into a California pale ale, into a West Coast IPA, um, was a natural evolution. And actually, has been the evolution of the American craft beer. It totally has. Yeah, I mean, um, you could argue, you know, you can see that, you know, from Ancostine to where we are today. Yeah. Many breweries, though, didn't elegantly make that transition or see it coming and continue to double down on beers that fell further and further outside the palate of the United States. So it's, I think... It's hard. It, it's, yeah. it's hard not to... It's really hard to create something. I mean, I have so much love for DBA, mm -hmm. so much love for it. Um, but it's just not um, everybody's, it's not what the kids want, so to speak. Um, I mean that in a sort of, um, you know, in, 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 uh, sort of modern way. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, it's, it's just very hard. It's very, it, you know, it's for any brewery to sort of um, abandon beers that they've poured their heart and soul into. Yeah. and evolve with the consumer. But the fact is, you know, you, get, you know, I go to beer festivals now and I'll pour DBA and I'll pour it to people whose fathers had drunk that beer. <laughs> and it's literally, it's, you know, it's that sort of cliche, this is my father's beer. Right. And it's like, hang on a second. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. Uh, there's a push-pull that happens with breweries and customers. Yeah. You know, um, right now we're, we're going through this phase where everybody's trying fruit IPA. There's no native pull from the consumers for fruit IPA. That Correct. was a brewer's beer, and they pushed it out into the market. Yeah. And then, um, some of those beers work, and some of them don't. They vanish immediately, uh, and then others kind of take hold. As a, as a brewery, uh, you're looking, you know, into the abyss as you are evolving, and it's not always obvious how things are going to change and which direction to jump. How do you how do you manage that evolution and, and push? You know, you don't want to you don't want to be the person who has the the, the 50th brewed IPA because right. that's not going to work. But you also don't want to be the one that's pushing the weird beer that nobody wants. So how do you how do you figure that one out? How do you well, it's two types of beers that you have, you know, in the brewery. You have beers that you just make for yourself. And that might be a Brute IPA. It might be a, you know, uh, an intense barrel-aged beer that is infused with wild woods. It might, you know, it might be all sorts of things. Um, and then you have beers that you expect um, the ordinary consumer to want to drink. Um, and what I mean by ordinary is someone who's not sitting in a sensory panel with you um, and it's not engaged in the process of exploration so which is just about everybody else and so you know you have to ask yourself what do they want to drink and um, I think specifically in the case of brewed IPAs I don't I'm not 100% sure that your average consumer wants to drink those um, there's so much more exploration going on in other flavors that um, I think I think uh, super dry Flavors are, are going to be a, a tough sell. Um, it's a great sort of, um, you know, there's this sort of um, curiosity with inventing, reinventing, redefining the IPA. Yeah. Um, almost like 
you know, breaking the land speed record. And to me, Brute IPA is a little bit of that. Um, and, uh, and obviously you see it with a lot of the yeast forward um, cloudy IPAs. And, um, and we saw it, frankly, in terms of um, how much hops can I put in a beer? How alcoholic can I make the beer? Um, how gnarly can I make the beer and so forth? So, um, so it's natural that it, this would occur in the IPA category, but um, you, you know, you have to listen to your customers, I think. Well, speaking of listening to your customers, let's talk about this festival. Yeah. Which I was surprised to hear is only eight years old. Mm -hmm. uh, it has achieved this kind of uh, reputation among beer drinkers that I just assumed it was a lot older. Right. So you're 15 years into the brewery, more than that, when you decide to start this festival. festival. Yeah. So what what was the inspiration and, and why did you start the festival? God, I don't know. Actually, I really don't know. It was... It was. It wasn't my idea. Okay. Um, I think Matt and Veronica had been. Uh, Matt had probably got fed up with going to festivals and having such a great time. I think he, um, uh, you know, Matt. Matt has a lot of friends, and uh, initially, I think it started out as a sort of collective of friends. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's a. Um, there wasn't any any moment that we just sort of decided to do it. Um, I think we got to a scale where we could afford to do it properly. And I suppose that was, that's a big part of the way we think through things is we don't want to really do something unless we can really do it well. And so when we set out to do it, we did it well. And I, I, I'm really proud of the way we go about this. Um, Will you, for, for people who are listening to this and didn't just experience it like I did, explain how you how you do the best and what, what are the kind of characteristic features of it that maybe are different than other Well, it's an invitational um, of Matt Brinelson. Um, so, um, and, you know, it's not a uh, it's not a beauty contest. It, it's just folks that he might have met in the year, um, friends, um, beers that he thinks are worth... Um, showcasing California, where Californians can't normally find these beers. Um, so um, it's not a sort of a, a sort of a California festival, so to speak. Um, so as much of that, you know, that's one of the drivers. Um, you know, we do it actually in partnership with the local, with the city here, who've been unbelievable. This is, yeah. I mean, this they, they, hand, is amazing. they hand over the fairgrounds, all the hotels get behind us, all the local people get behind us. It's really a true, Collaboration um, and, and how big is this town? Um, God, I wouldn't know. I mean, I think it's about thirty thousand people. Okay. Um, but it raises it raises a ton of money. It all goes to the uh, the um, uh, local charity here. Oh, really? Uh, yep. And um, you know, it's really it's a really great great thing all around. So, and you know, as a as a as a as a brewer in a small community, especially a larger one, you know, there's a sort of a certain obligation to. Uh, to participate. It, well, I think one of the things that I, I was really struck by, and people who listen to the podcast will hear this in our next edition of the podcast, is you actually get the brewers and brewery owners to come, and not only do you get them to come, they actually pour their own beer. Yeah, that's the, uh, that's the secret, and it's really hard because everybody, especially some of these small breweries that are in um, demand all over the world, it's really, really hard to get everybody here. But... Um, most of our friends really make an effort, and that's huge. It, I mean, it's a big deal. Yeah, it is um, a big deal. And yeah. What do you think that brings to the event, the, 
Well, it brings a lot of ownership. I mean, ownership of, I mean, it's uh, ownership of beer culture. And there's a certain, reverence is the wrong word, but, um, you know, there's a certain uh, sort of intensity about trying beer served to you by the owner of the brewery. And um, if you're the owner of the brewery, you're going to want to make sure your beer is pretty damn good. So everybody's, everybody's up for it, invested. And do, do you, uh, do just the breweries bring which beers they want, or do you make requests so you have kind of diversity, or is it just what the brewers want to bring? No, we tell them to, you know, to bring two styles of beer, we, but we don't drive it. Okay. And, uh, you know, they, they do their best within that. And then many of them bring more than two, and, uh, uh, and they showcase, you know, what they got. Right. So there's a lot of different kinds of festivals. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you you were, you know, you had been doing this here for a long time. So when you thought about doing this festival, <laughs> did you look at different models? I mean, I think uh, I'm in basic Portland, Oregon, and we have yeah. literally a festival almost every, I know. every weekend. Yeah. I think we're, we're coming to this place where, like, you know, I, I heard that these, this festival sells out in a minute or something. Yeah, a couple of minutes. So um, we don't really see that kind of excitement at all the festivals that you know right. we used to have. So when you were thinking of creating a festival, did you look at different models? How did you think about it? Did you think about what you wanted to accomplish? Actually, no, we didn't. I mean, sorry, we didn't. I mean, one thing we did, we didn't want it to be, we didn't want it to be a beer festival in the traditional sense. Um, we weren't looking to drive the numbers. We wanted to limit the numbers, um, and we wanted. We didn't. Um, we, we, you know, we just wanted it to be manageable. I mean, really. I mean, that that was. I don't think there was there was much more than that. I mean, th- there's an individual at the brewery, Veronica um, Juarez, who's um, sorry, Veronica Kral, um, and uh, she, this is her baby. She drives it. She knows all the brewers. She runs it like a sergeant major, this, and the whole thing doesn't happen without her. And um, her vision is driven into every corner of this this deal. And it comes from she just she's going to just do it right, or she's not going to do it at all. Um, but, but I think we're happy with the scale it's at. People ask us, well, you could sell ten thousand tickets. We probably could. We don't want to. Um, it's, it's good the way it is. And how many, I noticed there were, there were, there's volunteers, there's security staff, yep. there's your yep. staff. Yep. How many people does it take to? It's about uh, about 300 people support it. Okay. And then there's about uh, um, probably another 150 people in, in terms of the brewers mm-hmm. who come into town for it. And so. you invited media, thank you. Yeah, and media. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's... It's significant. It is a significant event. Yeah. yeah. Um, thinking about um, festivals, do you does Firestone Rocker participate in other festivals? Do you attend other festivals? Oh yeah, we do. I mean, we attend all over the world. Okay. And um, you know, there's a certain quid pro quo, um, which is uh, important. Um, so uh, yeah. That's I. So I spoke to some of the brewers uh, today, and I was surprised to hear how many festivals and events uh, they did. Yeah. Uh, somebody told me that uh, his brewery did 300 events a year. Yeah. 
which is shocking to me. Yeah, we do a lot of events. So I guess I didn't really realize how many events breweries are doing, and how does that fit into your marketing plan, and, and what, what, you know, what is the benefit of these? It, I actually think it's, I, I actually, I don't think you could make an argument that this makes any sense commercially. Okay. This is a, this is a annual for us gathering of our friends. And um, I think it sort of keeps beer culture um, alive and kicking. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult to see how, um, how a beer event like this will drive um, commercial success, frankly, for anybody who shows up. I mean, everybody's here because they want to get together and basically share their beers. Um, and I think everybody realizes that. So they share it with the people who also come to the festival. It's also, you know, sort of a lot of these guys collaborate with each other and now all great friends. Mm -hmm. So it's like a fraternity, mm -hmm. sorority. Um, yes. People, Increasingly, yeah, you. people, uh, people go and brew in each other's countries. A lot of these guys travel all over the world with beer. And uh, it's a, it's a, so it's, you know, it's, I think there's a big part of that, which is, you know, I, I work hard, I work my ass off, I own a brewery, I employ people, I make great beer, I'm now going to go and hang out with a bunch of friends and we're going to swap beers, I'm going to car share, you know, <laughs> a bunch of guys who have got their beautiful cars, you know, that's, My wife, Polly. Oh, yeah. Come sit down. Yeah, and join us. Yeah. We're doing a podcast, so yeah. it's very casual. <laughs> right. uh, I'm Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Nice to meet you. So, in no other industry, and not in the beer industry, so I've uh, traveled to Europe and spoken to older breweries, you know, multi generational breweries, and they would never consider uh, even divulging. You know their 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 ingredients, much right. less like anything else. Uh, so American craft beer has this has has kind of influenced, I think, worldwide beer culture for sharing. Yeah, and it's it's very. Why do you guys share <laughs> techniques? If somebody has a great beer that everybody's loving, why do you guys tell each other how to make it? Uh, we just can't help ourselves, you know. It's sort of, I suppose that's what it is. Um, I don't know whether it's a peculiar American um, characteristic. I think it's a, a generational thing. Yeah. Like it's not old brewing, yeah. it's new brewing. And maybe it's not American, but it's definitely, it seems like... The you know, I, it's, it's, it's sort of, I went to a, like a beverage industry conference the other day, and the CMO of one of the largest beverage companies got up and basically told everybody what she was thinking. And she was a genius. And I thought to myself, it's sort of fascinating, and you know, the CMOs from all the other big beverage companies are in the audience, and it's sort of like, this is good. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's a good question, um, but it's, it's, it's a lot easier to be collegial than sort of isolationist and weird. I mean, it, it makes it much funner and much more pleasant, but um, at the end of the day, you are in competition with these folks, and uh, yeah. you know, there's a certain well, you know, we sort of aren't. I mean, I say that, you know, American craft beer is 15% of 
America's volume, whatever it is, 20 odd percent of revenue. I mean, we're spread out across the country. I mean, we are, we, we all go toe to toe with each other, but it's sort of still us against indifference and mediocre experiences. Um, and so there is a, there's a real sort of esprit de corps amongst all of us. We'd still all the, much rather hang out with each other than, um, you know, other, other, other industries. So, I mean, I think it's, maybe, maybe, maybe it's because we're all still so sort of young. Um, yeah, there's something interesting about um, the way in which the, the rising tide lifts all boats. In Portland, I've watched craft beer grow, and, and there was that collegial, collaborative uh, atmosphere. And Portland, even today, continues to uh, grow more quickly than the nation as a whole in terms of craft beer, despite the fact that we have all these breweries. So it, it is, you're right, there is this weird thing in which yeah. uh, generosity get, begets uh, <laughs> all this uh, support from, from drinkers. So yeah, it makes sense. Uh, at some point that may change and then maybe things will be different. It might. I, you know, I'm, not, I'm not sure. It, you know, I'm sure if you went to a culinary conference, chefs would be sharing the secret sources. Um, I guess that's true. Yeah. Yeah, there's cookbooks, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's uh, some things sort of overwhelm competition. Um, so, a gallon. <laughs> I mean, do you think he worries about competition? No, no, I, I, I know that he does not. He makes beer because that's what he, that's all he, that's all he ever wants to do. Yeah, so we have uh, Alan Sprint, we prepare the dog. Yeah, us. exactly. He's one of the most fascinating cats out there, but I mean, I'm sure that have a conversation with him about competition would be a peculiar one. It's like, <laughs> what are we talking about? I'm making great beer, beer I, I, I love. I'm doing what I want to do. Next question. Right. Yeah, that's, that is what he would yeah. say. Um, Artistic mentality, as opposed to a business mentality. Yeah. And artists love to share and create. It, it, it's, um, you know, it is, it is changing though. It's big money now. Uh, yeah, no, it is. And it's big business. Yep. And it's, you know, Alan makes a thousand barrels a year. How much yep. does Firestone want? We make a lot more than that. Yeah. <laughs> we make a lot more than that. And that, and, and yeah, you know, there's, there is that, balance and um, without question um, Alan's puzzle is probably a purer one than ours um, and um, trade-off is we reach more people than Alan but um, we hopefully we still have the same principles and um, I would you know obviously have huge amount of respect for what he's doing and um, I'd like to think that we conduct ourselves in a way that um, he, he would he would agree with so I think the last thing I should ask you about while I have you while I have you here our listeners will be very interested is the 805 uh, yeah uh, explosion yeah happened. yeah Am I correct in thinking that that was not an incredibly strategic uh, development that that kind of caught you by surprise? No. No. Uh, my mother always used to say about me, if I fell off a bridge, I'd swim to the bank with salmon in my pocket. And uh, it was one of those moments. <laughs> um, 805 is just serendipity. We, you know, we made the beer internally, initially for the brewers, 
we made it for festivals and, and as a sort of private label beer for some of our local customers just to keep paying the bills. Um, we figured out it was a crowd pleaser. We, we, we decided that we wanted to remind people who we were, so we branded a sort of a local brand. And um, I think what we didn't account for is that the, there, was a, there was a strong sort of sense of um, regionality. And that that sort of that sort of drew it drew it out of its you know out into into more of a popular culture and uh, it works yeah. I mentioned earlier the push and pull, and this was one of those pull beers. Mm. Customers wanted this beer. Yeah. What what about it were they relating to? Why 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 did that beer spark this passion? Well, I mean, I think what was happening is is there were a lot of beer drinkers out there looking at craft beer. They didn't want to engage with it. They weren't, their palates didn't, didn't like the beer. Um, they didn't feel confident enough to buy it. 805 sort of hit them squarely between the eyes in terms of, yep, this beer works, I love it. Um, it was a very simple proposition, what it was. And there was no affectation, it was what it was. And um, I think we captured um, a whole group of people who weren't, who were buying imports, who who were really just not happy buying large international domestic beers. They just, they sort of figured out that it wasn't, there was something about it that they didn't feel sort of aligned with their values, or aspirations even. 805 did that. It's like, and you can drink beer, it's got a lot of flavor, it's not too much flavor. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it's not a beer that is the most popular beer in the world. And I, I, Frank, I don't want to, I don't want to follow what everybody else is doing. When you have a beer that's that successful, yeah. Particularly when you have this long, I don't know, uh, twenty years before that beer became popular. Yeah. My timeline, maybe. Yeah. Um, do you, do you worry that you have all these wonderful beers that have, you know, you? We do. Uh, we weep. We weep for those beers. <laughs> Double Jack is coming back in a mix pack in three months. It'll be. It'll come back for three months. But that's because we, you know, we we miss those beers. Yeah. So now you now you make what what, what proportion of your volume is eight or five? Um, it, I would say it's the majority. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, that poses this. You know, this this thing happens, and it's all this. Success. It's great to have a product that sells that well. Yeah. But then it, it also becomes this inflection point for a brewery, and your identity becomes now colored heavily by this. Now you're best selling beer. How do you feel about all that? You know, I suppose it's like the musician with a hit song. Uh-huh. All right. And it doesn't mean they don't make great music, and it doesn't mean you can search out that great music. But just because you whistle a song in the shower and everybody knows it. Um, it's a little bit like that. Um, I mean, we're we're curious brewers at our soul, and we built a community of employees. And what we've done here is all about, you know, perpetuating that. So it's it's really difficult for us to to sort of give up on that. Yeah. Um, and you know, eight to five will be, I think, a great success. And at some point, it probably, you know, will hang up its, you know, hang up its cans. And uh, but. You know, we'll have an enduring brewery that's working on a lot of things as well. And, and we've got some 
had some great successes in other areas um, as well. What, what, what do you what do you bring now that you're excited about? You know, Mind Haze has obviously been hugely successful, and it's sort of a no-brainer. Obviously, it's a it's a it's a hazy IPA, but um, you know, from our standpoint, from a brewer standpoint, we we're really proud of the fact that this beer, first of all, keeps its haze. Secondly, is shelf stable. Um, thirdly, is affordable, um, and lastly, sort of drives all of the expectations that someone wants when they drink a hazy beer, and um, they can buy it in the supermarket. So, to us, that's that's been a that's been a great journey, and it's really worked. And we're seeing it, we're seeing it in, in, you know, people wanting to buy it. Well, I think that's uh, uh, all I have. Is there uh, anything that you would like to say about Firestone Walkway that matters? You know, it sounds weird, but it, it's other than we built this this sizable brewery. It doesn't feel any different today than it did two years into the brewery. First year it was just Adam and I and a couple of crazy guys, but as we added more people, um, it's felt the same. I mean, there's a nice, it's just a great momentum, great culture, and um, it really is. It's uh, it's it's great. It's it's uh, we're all very proud of it, all of us. It still feels like it's uh, the beast that you created. It hasn't it hasn't gotten away from you. You feel you're happy to go work every day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you close your eyes. It freaks you out. It's a little bit like watching your heartbeat. You don't want to do that um, because we have so many moving parts. Um, but it all seems to work, and uh, we're very blessed because of that. So, well, thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure. Yeah. Uh, okay. So now I'm kind of jealous. You getting to hang out in Paso Robles. I know my invitation must got lost in the mail. Uh, so. <laughs> Firestone Walker has done super well. You mentioned this in an interview on their 805, their golden ale. Right. Which you and I, uh, to be politic, aren't like super excited about. It's a nice little beer. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's really well made, and it's, it's a great sessionable beer, and it's the kind of thing that if you were you know, sitting on the beach uh, in Central California, you'd love to have a six-pack next to you. Yeah, absolutely, and it kind of... Uh, riding the same crest of the lager wave. I mean, there's a lot of demand for these lighter beers. That's right. Given given what the brewery has has done um, over its 23 years, it's for for people who are really avid beer fans. It's probably not like the most interesting beer they would choose. Yeah. So there's, I think that's the, the what you were pointing at. But well, uh, my my point was going to be that here's a brewery that is now a fairly significant regional brewery. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of them are having struggles mm -hmm. but they're going strong and part of that is because they they caught some lightning with this 805 yeah this is the amazing thing about this brewery so they started out as this english style identity mm -hmm. and then um as the the beer industry went towards hops they started getting more and more into hops more and more into ipas uh they expanded into a beer that we're, we're going to try here in a minute called pivo pills yep. um got into lager so the lager why, why wait a minute Oh, you're right. What, what are we doing? <laughs> What's doing what kind now? of madness is that? Why wait when you can drink? Yeah. Um, this was a, a popular beer, and they now have another lager, which is called Lager, which is the one that uh, uh, Dave and I were drinking. Wow, that's creatively titled. I know, right? Um, it's more of a kind of a, just a session uh, lager, uh, you know, beer drinking 
something. And now they're transitioning into a beer we'll try in a minute called Mine Haze, which is a hazy beer. So they've they've gotten they've managed to do something that is extremely rare in beer, which is that's by the way that's either <laughs> carbonation, the tiny bubbles, or that's a Geiger counter. You know, one of the <laughs> two. We're old. What do we care? <laughs> Sorry, I just watched that Chernobyl. So I'm oh, thinking about yeah. I'm thinking about radiation a lot these days. <laughs> yes. Um, so anyway, it's it's very difficult for breweries uh, of a certain age to yeah. continue to evolve with the times, mm-hmm. and not only evolve with the times, but manage to continue to find relevancy in the marketplace. I mean, many breweries will throw things out there without really, uh, you know, catching uh, yep. that much of a market share. But here they are over over ha- what what David said was over half their volume right now is eight oh five, and. Um, you know, there's a really high likelihood that in 10 years' time, 805 will not be uh, that much of their beer, uh, oh. their volume. So they, they have had to continue to evolve and reinvent themselves, and they've done it more successfully than most breweries have pulled off. Yeah. Uh, You're liking that, Who knows what the secret sauce is? That is phenomenal. So, I don't think I, – you know what? I, I've not had any of these – I think the only – I've only ever had a couple of Five Stone Walker beers, to my shame, I suppose. But yeah, yeah, Union yeah. Jack IPA, I've had. Ain't no supposing about it, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I live in Portland, Oregon. There's, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, awash yeah. in yeah, good yeah, beer, yeah. so you know, Fair I'm enough. kind of a homer, right? Like, yep. what do I need with California beer? And it is true that we have some little snootiness about California beer up here. It's definitely true. Yeah, yeah. Although I'm kind of a, I'm kind of you know in the bag for Sierra Nevada. So, but Sierra Nevada is another one. So 805 mm-hmm. is kind of lightning in a bottle. They caught that. They've been using it to sort of ride that wave of growth. Yeah, they grew 28% in 2018. That was almost entirely as a consequence of the the 805, which, you know, every brewery in the country is trying to figure out, how do we come up with a, a beer that... Yeah, Sierra Nevada is kind of bucking the trend. I'm guessing it has a lot to do with their hazy. They grew a little bit uh, in uh, 2018 after two years of down, and mm-hmm. they bucked a trend... Uh, that a lot of other breweries haven't done. So, yeah, it's true. Yeah. So, so, this, so they this, didn't start in Paso Robles? I, I just have to say this oh. beer, while we're while you mentioned it, this we uh, last week we yes. talked about Agostino Arioli and right. the Italian Pilsner. Well, this is an Italian Pilsner. This was uh, Matt Brindelson and Ago are, are friends, and Matt really admired this beer, and um, he used it as inspiration to make Pivo Pils, mm-hmm. which is, I think, one of the more important Pilsners in the, the current craft lager. Renaissance. Mm-hmm. I think this was one of the, the first uh, out there. It wasn't the first in Portland, but um, nationwide, I think it kind of set the, the pace for that. And it's got it's it's got the characteristics that uh, are our new world, right? It's got a lot of hop character. It's mm-hmm. it's very bold. It has, um, yeah, it's a very nice beer. It's yeah, it's as I've I've had a lot of pilsners lately. A lot of craft pilsners. This is definitely near the top. Yep, it's a good one. It's hard to argue with this. I will say when I was at the brewery, I'm trying for Beer Sherpa. I'm really doing my best not to repeat myself with styles. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, uh, we're, uh, we're not, I'm going to, I'm going to recommend a different Firestone Walker for the Sherpa to, uh, later in the show. Mm-hmm. But one of my favorites was a, a Pilsner, a Keller Pils that uh-huh. uh, Firestone Walker did a collaboration with Russian River on, nice. which I had at the brewery, which was called Stevo Pills. So uh, Stevo and Stevo. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, with an I. And it was very nice. So if you're in anywhere, if you see that, you should buy it. Okay, good. Okay. Uh, what else can we say about? So uh, I was mentioning that they didn't start in Paso Robles. They actually started in Santa Barbara County. That's right. I think, now this is not data, away. but this is, 
you know, good enough for podcasts. I, I believe they actually started on the Firestone uh, winery grounds. Uh, that's and, what it sounded like from the interview. Yeah, I think that's right. Like so. he was kind of interested. So he got to start. You didn't explore this in the past. He said he started by growing grapes. Was he an employee of the Firestone winery, I assume? I assume that too, and I also have no more data than, okay. than that. He had to leave immediately after ah, okay. our interview, so I didn't get to sit and chat. He is, as I think anybody who heard that interview will immediately gather, an incredibly uh, charming and personable guy, and certainly a guy I would have loved to have sat and talked uh, about beer for another two hours, but he had to take off. So Yeah, we'll, we'll take what we can get. Yeah. Uh, so the Pivo's great. The DBA is fantastic. So you can kind of get a sense of why Firestone Walker took off and became so successful. Well, this is part of their brand. Um, they are a brewery who has created such a brand around quality that people will try what they're, they're making just because it says Firestone on it. Yeah. And I think a lot of breweries uh, uh, don't have that same commitment. I mean, this is a brewery that has one. I checked... Uh, I checked the GABF uh, files. They have won 51 GABF medals, <laughs> which which may be the most. They've been named the best brewery a few times. Yeah, uh, and uh, and and over half of those were gold medals. Yeah, they just they're a machine. They make incredibly good beer. They they do it. They can they can do it time and again. And I think that you know we we don't often talk about how much. Uh, things like quality, a commitment to quality, which is a really yeah nebulous kind of thing. Um, but, well, and but there was the, a time in craft beer where you didn't have to uh, care that much. And I mean, most breweries think that's that, to say. Most breweries think uh, that you know, like no brewery is going to say we don't make we we don't value quality. But there's there's quality and there's quality. I mean, there's here in here in uh, Oregon. I think one of the reasons Freem has done so well is because they have that same commitment. So right. every time a, a, a somebody buys a beer. They just enjoy it. They feel like it's, it's a, you know, well-conceived and well-executed, and that's right. kind of uh, Firestone Walker's, I think, main. You, you can't look at the beers, even the ones that we're having here today, yeah. and we, we didn't have 805. We throw that in here. They're all they're wildly over the map, so there's no like thread that connects the beer. Right. So you've so. opened now. Now the latest craze, of course, is the Hazy IPA, and they have one. And it's called Mind Haze. Sorry, I just poured a little beer on Edwina. And we, <laughs> oh, oh, uh, don't tell Will. Don't tell Will. Yeah. <laughs> this is why you should leave this part of the podcast to me. My audio is so much better than yours, though. <laughs> no way. Did you see what I did with the Pivo pills? That was okay. Oh, that okay. sounded so good. Okay, we're back after uh, we had uh, producer after Will you, no, no, really rather anxiously come in here after I doused yeah, poor Edwina with beer. Poured Edwina, poured beer on Edwina, poor, poor Edwina. But we have the mine haze now, so yep. the mine haze is in fact hazy. I can confirm. Yep. And in our haziness, our the the official beer von a haziness scale, this would probably be about a ooh eight maybe. Nah, seven. Seven. Okay. Uh, it's light colored. It's more straw. A little bit amber, but straw okay let me here we go here's the i mean yeah i would oh, say yeah, it has the right nose i would say six or seven because the the, the ones that are that's super true. hazy are so yeah, hideous shake, to me yeah, and i look true. at this and i think i'm not repelled shake. by that yeah milkshake's a little too much i agree oh yeah that's got a lot of uh a lot of candy up front uh a <laughs> little bit of sweat and <laughs> i'm gonna say a little caraway so i'm thinking there's maybe a mosaic or two a lot there. of mosaics in there yeah jeff and mosaics have a complicated relationship it's not that complicated i don't like them mm. i was trying to be nice yeah Ooh, and and guess who likes mosaics 
Only 6.2%, which guy. is nice. Uh, this is not a beer, uh, or not a brewery that, so many breweries, we, we could probably have a whole podcast on this, will mm. um, write everything that's in their beer on the side. Right. And have a lot of technical information. We should start asking brewers about that. Like they, why and why not? Yeah. We got to get on that. All right. That's a that's a future pod. Uh, Mind Haze has no information. So yeah. I don't know if there's, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. With um, I don't know what shops they are. But um, I declare it good. It's it's pretty good. I have to say, uh, yeah. the the nose is more savory than the palate. And the the palate is, is I'm gonna quite, say that quite sweet. That there is a little yeah, there is a little sweet candy note to it. That's mm-hmm. the only criticism I'd have. It's just a tiny bit sweet. And I think, but but I think people want that. Mm-hmm. That is right where the market yeah. is. The Northwest has kind of settled on a hazy that has a little bit of a bitter yeah. back to it. This is like a New England hazy. Yeah, this one doesn't have that kind of that bitter balance. It depends what you want, but and there's uh, it's a well, well-crafted beer for sure. Some of these hazies have that kind of sweet tart. Uh, yes, uh, fizz on your tongue. Yeah, that goes with this. It, not so much the tart, but the sweet, and it's a little fizz there. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's almost. Um, if people have ever had a fermenting beer, there's almost some little fizz right. with the sweet yep. and um, a little snap on your tongue. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting that. Um, you know. I would, I would drink one of these, and mm-hmm. then I would drink many more Pivos, uh, <laughs> maybe a DBA, but um, you know it's where the market is. Uh, I will say, all three beers are exceptionally well crafted beers, and you can see why they've built a reputation for quality because yeah. these are great. These are great beers. Yeah, if you see their name, you're just buy it. This is, I mean, if if, if you can pull that off as a brewery, we we talked in the last podcast about how. Uh, people are brewing a lot of different beers, mm-hmm. and that's great. But if 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 fifty uh, percent of those are kind of forgettable and mediocre, yeah. you're not maybe doing yourself as much good as you could be if you were really focused on dialing those in. And and each each one of those were impressing the customer. Yeah. Um, and I, and I'm going to go on a little a little tangent here, but because you and I went to uh, a brew pub, well, a pub of a brewery, they didn't actually brew on site, but uh, something came up during that experience which is it was a small a small pub they had one cooler and they were serving a whole range of beers uh and uh they had some english beers which were quite good what are you talking about where wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. you'll remember this. you're an old man you're, i know you're I, an old man. I, i'm searching my brain it's just searching searching <coughs> searching the, the little thing is spinning i can't okay. i can't come <laughs> so up with see. anything all right listener let's see when jeff clues in <laughs> he's not they had, in. A, they had a mild they had an esb Spinning, spinning, okay. spinning. Ancestry Brewery, which oh, is a local brewery here. They yes. do they do basically everything. So they're one of these breweries that's and it's that, true. That was a recent experience. That touches. I know. But I should have about, remembered like two weeks ago. <laughs> oh my, my lord. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but this is one of these these challenges to a brewery that's trying to do everything. Is it's not just the brewing, but it's also the presentation as well. So I had an ESB, which is really quite exceptional ESB, but I sat there like coddling it for about 10 minutes to warm it up. And at first it wasn't any good because mm-hmm. it was super cold. Right. It and, just didn't have the character. Yeah. And then after, over time it warmed up enough. I you know, I had my hands all over it warming it up. And then finally the malt character came through and the whole beer expressed itself. So it's just a, a quick way of saying that just brewing all these beers isn't necessarily enough. It's a, also a part of presentation and, and how you serve them. Yeah. Yeah. So, Indeed. Uh, that was a tangent. But now we'll get back. Uh, should we move on to the 
I think the we, Sherpa. I think we should do it. Speaking this of Firestone Walker, this has been a meaty episode, so yeah. let's let's do it. All right. So what, you, what, they don't need us babbling anymore. <laughs> so your Sherpa. Wait, David Walker, man. Your Sherpa, exactly. Your Sherpa has a Firestone Walker recommendation. So let's hear it. Yeah. Uh, uh, Firestone Walker opened a place called the Propagator in Venice, California, Ooh. and it's a brewery, and they make their own line. And while I was in Paso, as everyone calls it, uh, I think Robles is hard to say or something, or the yeah. whole thing is too much for Californians. Paso, man. That's how you, yeah, that's how you identify as a local, as yeah. an insider. Yeah. Um, so I had a many of their beers there, and the ones from the Propagator series were really impressing me. They had... Uh, it turns out they're not all lagers, but uh, it seemed like all the ones that I had from the Propagator series were lagers. Uh-huh. And they had a really wonderful Schwarzbier that I like quite a bit. Um, but I'm going to highlight the uh, Welcome to L.A., which was which they describe as a hoppy West Coast-style lager, which ain't nothing. <laughs> right. That is nothing. <laughs> what is a West Coast lager? <laughs> but what the, what they're pointing at is, uh, so it was, it, it's a really small beer. It's like 4.2%. And it has... Already, a, I like it. Yeah, and it has... So it's like a session IPL, right? right. Indie, indie pale lager, but a session lager. Mm-hmm. It's like... They, that was the the what they were thinking, and it was very well done. Shockingly, um, it had uh, enough body, even though it was only four point two percent, that um, it's it stood up. I, it was the kind of beer that I wanted to continue to drink, um, and and the hops were suggestive without being overwhelming, right? Which you have to do if you only have four point two percent of, of alcohol. A very light touch. That's right. So it was uh, delicate, west coasty. Um, the lager character was came through in the crispness. It was uh, much like an IPL. You didn't get a lot of the the, the uh, uh, sulfur snap and, and right. you know the classic lager qualities because those would conflict with the the really vivid nice. West so Coast. So ne- next next you're gonna say you can only get this if you're in Venice, California. Probably Paso as well. <laughs> oh, Paso. Okay, <laughs> so sweet. Hey man, it's, set. it's beer Sherpa. Like you, you gotta. It's not like no, absolutely. It's not like beer. You can get this at any grocery store. Absolutely. It's the Sherpa. You got to go up the mountain. You yeah. got to go to. You got to go to California, man. By the way, if you are intrepid beer explorers, let us know. Let us know if you follow that Sherpa recommendation all That's the way right. up to the top of the Himalayas. You can do. You, you can also uh, tip us off on your own Sherpas. Yeah. Or, or even better yet. You can send us beer and see if you can make the Sherpa. Ooh. Huh? Yeah, huh? absolutely. We'll even give you Patrick's address so he doesn't feel left out. <laughs> no, you will not give him my address. <laughs> uh, send it to beer. Uh, send it to beer. Send it to Jeff, care of me. I mean, send it to me, care of Jeff. Yeah. All, All right. right. That's really going to work for you, pal. Speaking of mailbag. Yeah, let's All do right. it. Let's do the mailbag. We have a bunch of mailbag comments. Yeah, so we uh, we threw open the mailbag to people to comment on uh, festivals, which we talked about last week. Nice. And uh, we have some nice questions, comments, and just reflections. So let's let's trot through these. I think we probably don't have a chance uh, to talk for five minutes on each of these. So we'll just go quick. All right. So the first one is from John. John writes, so many beer fests are meh. What separates wheat from the chaff? What makes a good beer fest? I think... You know, it's all about selection. Uh, when uh, last week was it, uh, one of the brewers. Um, <laughs> I can't remember which one now. Sorry, it's to it's, further it's, illustrate your failing memory. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, described only going to brewer-sponsored festivals. Yes. I think. I think the idea that he was suggesting there is these are people who care about uh, the composition of of uh, what's available and how the beer is taken care of. Uh, and you know, just a lot of those intangibles. Yeah, that was Doug Reeser from Burial, by the way. Thank you. You're welcome. 
you got you got the deets, man. Yeah. Good job. So for me, I think um, you know you can do it a lot of different ways. You can do a pilsner fast. You can do farmhouse fast. You can do a general fast. Right. But what you really want to do is curate it properly. Yes. Make sure the beer is good. Make sure the breweries are good. Make sure the the event uh, is um, designed with the customer in mind, not mm-hmm. not 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 the not the bottom line of the, yeah. the sponsor. And to your and to and to your credit, you've been talking about these curated fests for years and years and years. In fact, you went out and curated a, a, a small beer fest. I did. Uh, the Mighty Mites. Years ago, the Mighty Mites fest. But that was your big bugaboo, which is that you should be very you should be very thoughtful about what kind of beers you're having. You should have a theme. You should have some kind of central. That's right. It's like writers. Uh, you should think if you're a writer, you should think about the reader. You shouldn't think about who you're writing about. Right. You're not writing for them. You're writing for the reader. So what does the reader want to know? What do, what do they want to hear? Yeah. So and I would just say that the opportunity to actually meet people involved in the production of the brew, of the beer it doesn't have to be the brew master, but anyone from yeah. the brew house helps a lot. I, I really s- like that. I certainly find that incredibly uh, enriching, and I would love to hear if other people find that to be the case. So okay. So Ryan asks, it's such a great opportunity to reach lots of people, Brewfest, but how do you make it more impactful slash educational surrounding the brand? You got any ideas on this? This, one, this, one, this was one of the reasons I was asking questions of these brewers, because it does seem like that's a challenge, you know? Well, I think you need to have someone there who's ready to talk mm-hmm. to people about it. Uh, so let's just use the example that we've been talking about. Um, last week was the Oregon Brewers Festival. You just have volunteers pouring the beer. They don't know anything about the beer at all. Nothing. You're right. They know nothing. Yeah, nothing they at all. They haven't even been able to taste it yet. They don't even know what it tastes like. Yeah, they're not allowed to drink it. So they don't know anything. They're just pouring it. Yeah. Uh, and so it's completely... So there might be a few notes. And some be, some breweries take those notes seriously. Some Brewery, uh, brewers take Van Havoc, take those notes as a chance to <laughs> a chance to be ironic. That's right. And then some don't write anything useful at all yeah. or nothing. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So I think that the, f- the advantage of these small brew fests where you actually send brewery staff is that you can uh, make a big impact about the, the perception and knowledge of your brand by having someone there who's ready to talk about it. Yeah. I think this goes back to, a little bit to John's too. I know there are specific fests like the Firestone Walker Invitational. There's one in uh, Oregon called Creek Fest where uh, it's a special location which is designed particularly for the fest. And so it's a, you know, it's it's carefully designed so that, you, you know, there's trees and water and, and it's a pleasant place to go and enjoy and have a have a good time. So I think that's another a piece, something that I look for. Like when it's just yeah. like out in the middle of a parking lot, that's brutal. Right. I'm not so interested. And in that. everything we've said probably also suggests that smaller is better. Yeah, maybe. I mean, um, you know, I think a few tweaks could make OBF a really fine festival, uh, which is, gi- you know, it'd be giant, but... Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't take know. your point, but sure. Yeah, yeah. All right. We disagree. Agree to disagree. Well, I just think that it's much... I mean, you could make the OBF a lot better, but it's it would be a big endeavor. It would be hard. I mean, it's it's a zoo. There's so many people there. Gonna do going to do something right. It's always hard, man. <laughs> okay. Nikki asks... Does Firestone Walker think that raising price might lead to less demand? I should be asking this. Let me finish this because I'm going to throw it to you. <laughs> In my opinion, it is underpriced for what it is. They could charge uh, twice for what they do. Okay, so first this relates to the fact that they sell out in, what, 10 minutes or something like yeah, that. As like, soon as tickets like go on. one or two minutes. Yeah, a it's couple like minutes. Fast. It's gone. And they, I assume they do it online. Yes, okay. must be. I mean, so anyone anywhere could buy it. It's just that you David have to Walker be was talking about like you hit refresh or something. Oh, yeah. God. 
Okay, so yeah, so here we go. How do you ration goods? Right? Yeah, right. So there's excess demand. Lots of people want to come to this. How do you ration? Well, the easiest thing to do, how the market does it, is through price. Right. Right. So you ration goods by price. So for example, you could have an auction for Firestone Walker Invitational tickets, and then what would happen is that the people who have the highest value for the good, in this case the ticket to the Invitational, will be the ones who buy it. Now, from an economist's point of view, this is efficient, right? The people who most value it get to go. On the other hand, there's an equity problem, which yes. is that the people who value it most are often, well, can is highly correlated with people who can afford it, people who have the most money. So a whole bunch of, I don't know, Silicon Valley tech folks are going to buy all the tickets because they're willing to pay 1000 bucks. Wall Street bros, yeah, yeah great. $2,000. So this is this is... This is a problem, right? How do you ration goods? Another things like um, old style ticket, you know, concert tickets where you have to queue up. A queue is another way to ration things. Mm -hmm. Now, what's nice about a queue is that you're still paying a cost, but it's a cost that most people can afford in the sense that, look, if I have to camp out overnight, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm a Wall Street bro or if I'm just some, you know, guy who runs the canning line at a brewery or something, right? Like uh, Wall Street bros, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, Hashtag and in fact, it's almost easier for the person who makes less money because the opportunity cost is lower, as we would say in, in economics. Uh, so doing it this way, the way they do it, is not the best from an economist's point of view because they do neither. They just basically say, okay, here are the tickets, the first, the quickest, the people with the quickest internet access and the fastest finger or whatever who is ready for it can buy the tickets and then it's done and we don't care. And one thing I don't know but it would be interesting to find out is how many of the people, is there a secondary market, and how many of the people who actually win that lottery go? Right. Or are they selling, selling it on the secondary that's market? Actually, that's actually an excellent question, right? Because when you don't have this kind of rationing, that's exactly what happens. Yeah. Is that I'll just go on and I'll buy as many tickets as I can, as fast as I can, and then I'll just turn around and sell them for twice as much. Which is certainly not what Firestone's trying to do. They're, tr they're, they're, they're shooting for equity, not monetizing. So I'll thing. actually pose this as a question to our listeners. Like, what is the best rationing mechanism? So the obvious thing is just to let price rise, you know, instead of what do they charge, 100 bucks? I, I let's say let's say hundred bucks. Right. Let's charge three hundred bucks. You know, let's see if it's still if you still sell out in two minutes. Let's charge five hundred bucks. You know, <laughs> so that's one way to do it. So some of those people who buy it are the people who just love craft beer so much, love this event so much, they're going to pay it no matter what. And yeah. then some of them are just because three hundred bucks isn't any big deal, right? So that's the challenge. This is always a challenge in economics, by the way, the equity efficiency trade off. You could do something like um, you charge. Uh, uh, a thousand dollars for people to get there an hour early, and like they're, it's very the only people pouring beer are the owners, and then everybody else it's free. Yeah, you know, and it's a challenge for lots like of things. Of by the way, like rock bands do this as well. Like yeah, you might have, exactly. like there might be a mailing list from Firestone Walker people who want to sign up first, and then you know, and then people Super on the mailing fans. list, yeah, they get to ch choose first, and so on and so forth. Hmm. So there are ways you can do it, but they don't, and so that's interesting. I'll I'll leave that to. Uh, to people, uh, in my in my opinion, by the way, that we've talked about this with the OBF too. You should charge. You should charge more. Right. I know, and I think I think, yeah. There's a lot of different. But I agree that that, that shouldn't be the only thing. Like I, I I think there should also be a secondary way in which you can sort of get in because, you know, of your beer geek credentials. Right. <laughs> I don't know what that is. So, all right. Last one, Pete. 
How is Firestone Walker's ownership situation affecting business? Ooh, interesting. Uh, we didn't talk about that. We'll talk about it in a second. Their ability to fly people for, to festivals, for example. So explain Firestone Walker's ownership situation. In, in 2015, they were purchased by the collective uh, headed by Duval, which mm-hmm. uh, also owns uh, Omegang and uh, Boulevard, plus cool Belgian breweries. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. It really helps, right? Like, I mean, it, it doesn't hurt that this brewery grew 28% last year after, I think, two years of 805 fueled growth. I think they have, right. all, you know, it's whether they were owned by Duval right now or not, they would have a fair amount of money to fly in people like me, which, which full disclosure, they did. Uh, but um, I think one of the great advantages is you talk about it all the time. It's efficiencies. It's, um, you know, they... The, the whole the whole with a collective you can start uh, um, saving money on things like accountants and lawyers and HR HR advertising yeah all of these things and <clears throat> so you have more money to do things like fly in people like me which is actually a fairly inexpensive um, I mean it, like one an an hour of a lawyer's time is probably what it costs for them to fly me in right. so um, you know it's, it's you can you can get a lot of bang for your buck um, with a few efficiencies there. Yeah, and the other thing you could do is you could sponsor a podcast. Yeah, that's yeah. in fact the whole group Wait, that's could sponsor. A, that's a that's a brilliant idea. Isn't it? I just thought of that. Yeah, maybe yeah. they could buy like a whole year, and then we could like go uh, every quarter. We could feature a different brewery. That's right. And that's yeah. interesting. I think that's fantastic. I think someone I, should tell them that. That's no. that would be a that would be something to pitch. All right, we're getting long, so we better get out of here. Yeah. Uh, so a few words about getting out. Uh, going a few words about getting out. Oh, brother. <laughs> Uh, too much pivo. Yeah, too much pivo. All right, a few words going out. Please or, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five or, stars, please. <laughs> or or review us. Uh, this helps other listeners find the show. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, of course, so please send us your questions or comments. Uh, first best is probably uh, emailing Jeff uh, at jeff at Uh He also has the Beer Vana Blog's Facebook page. You can post there, or you can visit us. Visit, no, brother. Visit us on social media. Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog, and he tweets at Beervana. And Patrick tweets at Beeronomics. All right, so uh, i got to pick a beer um, because I'm all about the new world. No, you want the old school. All right, so you're going for the DBA? I'm going for the DBA, I'm man. I'm going to go for the Pivo then. All right. It's going to go for the Hazy, but, you know, let's be classic. <laughs> <laughs> you go um, you go, uh, you go, go Bavarian slash Italian, and I'll go UK, man. All okay. right, sounds good. All right. <laughs> Cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick. <laughs> They'll never know. Spilling beer on the yeah, it worked. X-ray.